This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The On Words Conference. Jack Vance. Defensive Scenarios. And the Nazi Occult. stock footage of a BOAC jetliner trundling down the runway at Toronto International. And we uh, joined the throng of reporters, flashbulbs popping, to interview the Hawaiian shirt bedizened celebrity coming down the the little stairway from the back of the big uh, DC-9. Robin, tell us about your trip to exotic Ottawa. So, uh, first of all, I fooled the paparazzi by going by train, uh, via rail train, uh, to and fro the nation's capital in Ottawa, which... For those who are not up on your Canadian geography, is right on the border between Ontario and uh, Quebec. It was a, a city uh, hewn out of an obscure uh, logging town in around 1800, where these uh, beautiful neo-Gothic uh, Parliament buildings were built. And I was there to attend the Writers Union of Canada On Words Conference, which is its annual general meeting or AGM. And uh, so I was there to rub uh, shoulders and cut a rug on the dance floor with uh, some of the heroes of uh, Canadian literature and distinguished historians and revered poets and uh, attend panels and discuss union business. Union business. And and is that because uh, you are now a union man and felt it was uh, incumbent upon you, or was there some specific reason that you have gone to the AGM this year as opposed to previous years? I am a member of the Writers' Union of Canada, and the sort of link that uh, led me to go there was uh, sort of threefold. First of all, my lovely wife, Valerie, has been a staff member at the Writers' Union for about 10 years now, and although throughout that time I qualified to join as someone who has had professional books published, uh, because I've had novels published, they did not have to undergo the existential crisis as to whether role-playing game products would qualify one for the union. Uh, I could just hand them uh, some of the novels that I've written, which were distributed by Simon & Schuster, for example, and establish my professional credentials to join. But a few years ago, I first of all wanted to do a little bit of networking with writers from other scenes in my capacity as creative director of Stone Skin Press, because our mandate there is to draw not only on the writers we know in the world of gaming and outside of that in fantasy and science fiction, but to go even broader, and that includes recruiting some uh, literary writers and YA authors and so forth. So I wanted to meet some folks. And also at the time, I was a little bit concerned that the direction that the union might be headed in is toward a presentation of intellectual property rights that was self-defeating. And this has become less of a concern in the short three years that I've joined because, first of all, in our sector with Kickstarter and so forth, that that's sort of our solution to the issue of, you know, people connecting the dots between paying for the work of writers and writers getting paid and that work existing. And I think that is a little less of an issue. And I think that the uh, people who are concerned about the excesses of the free culture movement have also learned to present their case in a better way that makes me worry less. The big issue 
of this event in Ottawa was actually whether the union should undergo a big dramatic shift that a lot of other writers' organizations have yet to make and decide to allow self-published authors who otherwise meet the same standard of professionalism that the people who are published by traditional means meet, uh, allowing them to join the union. And so there was, that was the big uh, order of business during the uh, plenary session. And in fact, the resolution passed unanimously, and now it has to go to the uh, membership as a whole. There are about 170 people at the AGM, of which not everybody was at the plenary session, but there are 2,200 members of the union, and they're now going to have to vote on this uh, resolution, and uh, two-thirds of them will have to approve it before finally the policy changes and a otherwise professional self-published author will be able to join on the same footing as a traditionally published author. And what are the, what are the uh, guidelines for an otherwise professional self-published author? I can hear people all across Canada warming up their um, uh, Degrassi High fanfic and getting ready to sign their union cards. So maybe you could clarify that. You uh, will have to have an ISBN number. You will have to demonstrate commercial intent. That is, you cannot just print up copies of your novel and give it out for free or give electronic copies away for free. And there will be, in addition to the current level of review that the existing membership committee exerts, there will also be another level of peer review where people in those fields will look at it. And you can, because the Writers' Union covers people not only who are writing literary fiction, other forms of fiction, uh, creative nonfiction, YA books, children's books, poetry, it's difficult to come up with a set of rules that covers mm -hmm. all of the different criteria. Uh, you know, commercial intent may, means something very different for a poet. <laughs> yes. Yes. You, you pretty much you've, you've forfeited that when you became a poet, surely. Um, well, I mean, the difference is you charged something for it, right, and there yeah. are you know there are other ways of funding that work. You're not just you know posting stuff for free on the internet, right, for example. Yeah. Um, but and as someone who is not a a poet or a romance novelist or a writer on New Age spirituality, I can't look at any of those works and really tell the difference hugely between who is a professional and who is a merely an aspiring writer who isn't there yet or who's just a pure hobbyist. Mm -hmm. But in my fields, I can tell the difference when I, you know, essentially at a brief glance at a fantasy or uh, horror manuscript or, you know, a nonfiction work about games, there's a actually pretty quick smell test that I'm sure that, you know, that you use when you're approached by people who, uh, at a convention, who think they might want to be writers. You can kind of tell in about, what, 12 seconds? Yeah, something like whether that. Whether you're dealing with someone who uh, is on the ball and has a potential to be professional or someone who is uh, merely an aspirant. Uh, the sort of person, you know, who calls the writer's union and asks, uh, who do I call to get published? Well, so the trick is to make sure that uh, going forward that the people who really are professional and have the same sort of issues in terms of uh, taxation and having your work used by curriculums and all the different professional issues that the writer's union deals with, that there will still be people who are engaged with those questions and uh, need the help of the writer's union and who conversely can help members of the writer's union, many of whom have started to explore things like self-publishing, even though they originally became members through 
their traditional credentials, uh, obviously there's an exchange of information that can go on there and uh, enrich people on both sides because, you know, this we wouldn't be looking at this question at all if it weren't for the fact that the publishing industry is undergoing a huge convulsion and changing very much and, and interestingly changing in a way that we in our tiny, weird, uh, ex inexplicable to outsiders field of role-playing gaming are kind of at the vanguard at, right? Yeah, we're, we're, we're actually sort of past the vanguard and we're, you know, we're, we've moved well on down the trail again. I mean, the, we were at the vanguard in like 2005 and now we're, I think we're where everyone's going to be again in, you know, four or five years. Hopefully, with another couple of zeros on the on the checks, but still. Well, I, I would argue that we've passed a number of checkpoints, but that we're always at the vanguard, right? So the the whole issue of ebooks, we were way ahead of the mm -hmm. curve on that. Uh, how to deal with piracy is kind of a mostly a settled issue within our little precinct, where it's, it's still a huge issue in other fields. And now we're onto the whole uh, Kickstarter revolution, which uh, is something that I think has enormous application for people writing small press literary and poetry works. And uh, we're also sort of, you know, we're way ahead on the direct sales revolution, and which I think is sort of an ingredient that a lot of uh, small presses doing interesting work that has a small but fervent following. You know, we have maybe a few things that we can yeah. sort of point people along the way. And so the dutiful Canadian part of me is that's, you know, another reason that I joined was to, you know, I know a couple of things that might be sort of applicable to other people. If You've been over into the future and you know what works. Yes, I can explain tw Twitter to uh, revered Canadian poets. Fantastic. Now, is there a Canadian um, Mike Stackpole that uh, sort of exists to uh, be the, 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 the guard dog on the caravan and bark at people who are going the wrong way? Or is uh, do, they just, you, do they just use American content for their hectoring uh, lectures about the future? The polarization between trad pub and self pub doesn't really seem to have registered within, uh, at least within the writers union. And that may reflect the, the complete absence of self pub people in it. Uh, yes. And, <laughs> and also just the, the orientation toward, uh, more kind of serious, uh, culturally, uh, relevant or high culture works where I would say that, you know, even in the, you know, the American fight over those two things, it's often, uh, genre writers on both sides kind of duking it out mm -hmm. and that that question really hasn't hit the shores of uh, literary fiction. The writers union was actually founded 40 years ago, one of the event, you know, and so there were a lot of commemorative events and it was established by the early Titans of Canadian literature as a needed part of cultural infrastructure to advance the cause of Canadian literature. So there's still, uh, and also in Canada, literary fiction sells, right? It's, uh, a commercial fiction, but it's uh, writers do not necessarily look at it in the same sort of pocketbook way that infuses the weirdly polarized argument between self-pub and, and trad-pub. Well, in America, traditional literature sells as well. I mean, if you look at the numbers, you know, uh, there's plenty of American mid-list uh, traditional writers, not even your Jonathan Franzen's are, you know, turning over numbers that are equivalent to American mystery writers or American science fiction authors. The the notion that uh, genre sells and literary smells is, I think, a little bit of a... It, it flatters both sides of the argument, which is why it keeps coming up. But if you sort of break down the numbers, both sides have got, you know, you know big bestsellers at one end and 
a you know comparable mid list and then a long long tail of wannabes. The comparison between Canada and America there is that at any given time there will be more works in the literary genre on a Canadian bestseller list than there will be on the American bestseller right. list. Yeah. I, I think that's, you know, probably indisputable. Now, speaking of, of genre, then, um, to bring it around to us, as all obsessive nerds must, did you find it uh, difficult to explain to the assembled great and good of Canada what it was that you do? Or was it, uh, it has it sort of filtered into the, the literary mindscape of Canadian uh, bells lettristes? Um, people have no idea what it is that role-playing is in, right. in this context. And I did not go to enormous lengths to explain it. Um, so, because that's not the relevant part of the spiel, right? The relevant part of the spiel is I work in a field that you haven't heard of, but we're kind of at the vanguard of all of these changes. Mm -hmm. And so the discussion turns into what those are. If someone actually asked, I would explain it more. But if someone said, oh, that's science fiction or, oh, that's comics or, you know, whatever the thing that is nearly what it is that I do, it was not my agenda to go and explain to them what role-playing was. And, you know, I did get into you know, a couple of conversations with some lions of the Canadian literary scene that went a little deeper, but, you know, that that's not my agenda. I wasn't going there looking for legitimacy for what I do, because it doesn't matter. And, you know, in a way, I'm sort of beaming in from an alternate dimension. You know, I wasn't even asking about legitimacy. I was just saying that, you know, when at, at every gathering of writers I've ever been at, the second question or first question is, what are you working on now? And unless you, I mean, you may have a Pathfinder novel, you know, in the back of your belt that you can pull out and say, I'm writing a fantasy novel, and then they nod and smile. But that always involves a slightly ornate ex explanation from me. Right. And fortunately, I sort of, I have Hillfolk on the go, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is something that creatively is more within their bailiwick. And so I would describe how that works rather than trying to describe how Dungeons and Dragons or GURPS works. Um, now, uh, turning from the matter of uh, the Canadian great and good, your Atwoods and uh, Monroes, to the question of Ottawa, Bytown, as it is known in the trade, uh, the world's third cleanest city, was there were there any highlights of your visit that uh, you'd like to uh, to share with the prospective uh, tourist who, like Ottawa itself, is uh, torn between Montreal and Toronto? So Ottawa is a really lovely and interesting and weird mix of different towns. It's obviously a government town. Its industry is government. And along with being the seat of federal government, of course, it has a lot of cultural infrastructure that's trying to tell you things about the country that you live in or are visiting. So there are some great museums. If you're a lover of museums, uh, there's the uh, National Gallery. There's the History Museum, which is called the... Museum of Civilization. There's a natural history museum, and perhaps more specialized, the one that you would make a beeline for, it would be the War Museum. Yes. There's also an agriculture museum, if uh, that floats your boat and or tractor. Um, and the feel of the town, it's sort of uh, part seat of government, part just sort of small city. It's much smaller than both Montreal and Toronto, and partly sort of almost has like a cottage country sort of tourist vibe. So along with the other things I've mentioned, the other major attraction is a permanent farmer's market. Um, so it's uh, a really sort of a laid back capital. It doesn't have the presentation of, of reverence that uh, we were discussing off mic earlier that uh, Washington has. Uh, the equivalent feeling that a Canadian gets when visiting Ottawa is not one of reverence, but one of reassurance and contentment. You just go, well, 
whatever else is going on, whatever else happened today, <sighs> I'm Canadian. I'm Canadian, and so is my capital city. Indeed, yes. Yes. Now, uh, speaking of, of what is Canadian and speaking of the ca capital city, when I was uh, doing my due diligence on Ottawa for this, I noticed that uh, just like uh, Philadelphia, the statue of William Penn was supposed to be the tallest thing in, in Philadelphia until they got a, an easement so they could build insurance buildings taller, uh, the tallest building in Ottawa was supposed to be something called the Peace Tower. And when I looked up the Peace Tower, because I was getting ready for a hilarious uh, riff on the notion, I discovered that this is the most warlike peace tower in the history of peace towers. <laughs> it has got, you know, uh, monuments to all of Canada's uh, uh, fighting units. It's got peace, you know, uh, it's built from stone from Flanders Fields. It's got brass hammered out of artillery shells for the brasses on it. It may be the most badass peace tower in the world. And Canada, for those who are, you know, uh, unaware... Between 1914 and April of 1918 was easily the most badass country in the world. I mean, they were MVP of WW1, and anyone who doubts that can just go ahead and look up the life of Sir Arthur Curry. But uh, the the Peace Tower, I gotta say, you've got a dragon in your Peace Tower. That's phenomenal. Did you have you been to the Peace Tower? Is it as awesome as Wikipedia makes it sound? No, this is the the big Gothic spire. Yeah, the big the... Gothic spire with a clock and 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 the whole nine yards. Yeah. It's a campanile, technically, but yeah. Well, uh, I think that Canada's ambiguous relationship to war is reflected throughout the monumental space of, of Ottawa, and we have a war memorial that is has recognizes the fact that, you know, we've left a lot of people on a lot of battlefields, mm -hmm. uh, both as a sort of semi-colonial power as part of the, the Commonwealth forces that you often see referred to yes, in your by British accounts. authors who can't admit that it was Canadians doing all the heavy lifting. Yes, and, and or Australians. Let's, yeah, let's, right, yes. Um, and, uh, but there is also a very distinctly Canadian tang to that in that the people being celebrated in the monuments in the War Memorial, for example, also would you know include a particular nurse who uh, had a heroic history, or Laura Secord, who is sort of our Paul Revere figure mm -hmm. of the War of 1812, or elsewhere in the city you will find a monument to Canada's peacekeepers, or a monument to uh, war animals with a sculpted dog with his uh, uh, carrying various equipment on his back. So the uh, war has certainly always been part of Canadian history, but it's one that has always been, I think, shot through with a sense of memorializing and, uh, and regret. Uh, more so, I think, than the equivalent sort of more openly celebratory uh, presentation that you get in America. Well, I mean, it depends on where you go, obviously. The Tomb of the Unknowns or uh, Arlington are plenty full of regret, uh, but, you know, most American, you know, National Guard armories are, are more about um, uh, going and getting a job done and doing it uh, remarkably well, uh, as opposed to the, the, the sort of the human cost. Although, Again, even in, in most of those, you'll see the, the, the list of the dead, uh, like, like again, you have in, in the Canadian Peace Tower. And, again, part of what's so incredible about the Canadian effort in World War I, they built this, you know, 300-foot-tall tower with the theory that they would be able to carve the names of all the Canadian dead in World War I into the walls of it, and there wasn't room. So they had to um, uh, go to a plan of, of keeping large books in the Peace Tower with the names of all the, the hallowed Canadian war dead. So... I don't know. I mean, I I looked at that, and that was like just the most uh, fascinating thing I'd I'd never heard of about Ottawa. Right. So it's both you know gothic and imposing, yet at the same time was a uh, conceptual precursor to America's Vietnam 
monument, right? Which was supposed to be all about the names all up mm-hmm. and down it, but it was World War One, so you couldn't fit the names. Right. Yeah. No. It's 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 just an, an astonishing uh, space, and I I, I think that uh, to the extent I want to go to Ottawa, I want to go to the Peace Tower, and then maybe to that. Uh, that National Art Gallery you talked about. I, I think you would find a bunch of stuff to dig in Ottawa. Yes. Well, um, as we are uh, drifting into the discussion of just how badass Canada is, while that is certainly <laughs> a subtext of the entire podcast, it is not technically the topic of this hut, and therefore perhaps we must scamper out of Ottawa, giving it a fond farewell glance. So our next hut has a sort of sadly or perhaps only wistful topical reason for being, and we're journeying into the book hut to celebrate the life and work of the great Jack Vance, who certainly has had a huge influence on me, and I've been lucky enough to have the opportunity. Often I'm asked, you know, what is your dream project, Robin? And one of my dream projects would be to create a role-playing game based on the fantasy works of Jack Vance, except I already got to do that with mm-hmm. the Dying Earth role-playing game. And so I thought that we would uh, talk a bit about uh, Vance and his life and uh, and his work and recommend starting places to people who have not yet treated themselves to the uh, work of this amazing fantasy and science fiction writer who, until his death, shortly... Uh, a few days before we record this podcast, I would argue would definitely be the greatest living writer of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, But he is uh, gone at age 96, and so let us celebrate his fabulous, witty, recondite, beautiful, dark, mordant, fascinating work. So Ken, do you have a a particular favorite uh, work of Vance's that you would recommend that people start with? Well, like you imply, Vance is so very much a, a superpower in both fantasy and science fiction. I mean, even more so than, than Fritz Leiber, who I think is the only writer you can even begin to point to in terms of, of scope and ability uh, compared to Jack Vance. And even, even Leiber, as great as Leiber is, is you know the, the Christopher Marlowe, if anything, to Jack Vance's Shakespeare. I would say that if you are a fantasy person, you know, it's, it sounds obvious, but the reason it's obvious is it's right, is you start with the Dying Earth stories, and you... And you, you know, just sort of, you can read them chronologically or you can read them in whatever sort of order you want because dipping anywhere into Vance is, uh, unlike uh, Lovecraft, or perhaps he uh, has had the advantage that much less of his juvenilia is in print. Unlike Lovecraft, you can sort of dip in anywhere and get a pretty strong uh, level of writing just right off the top of the bat. I, I would say, though, if you're going to start with The Dying Earth, start with the second collection of short stories, Eyes of the Overworld, because the first book. The Dying Earth is a lot of fun and something that we reflect and support in the book, but it's not sort of the, it is Vance developing his style, and you can see the style develop through the course of that collection of short stories. The earlier ones are more sort of traditional, sort of a meeting point between almost Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith in a uh, and it's, it's set in the same world, but the tone he hasn't quite nailed yet. So if you start with those, you may be somewhat confused as to what all the fuss is about. Yeah. But if you start with Eyes of the Overworld and then go back to that later, then you will 
I think, if you bought in at all, be fascinated to see him developing from his influences to his incredibly original voice, which I think, perhaps even if you're not interested in Vance, is a really interesting exercise if you are interested in uh, either writing yourself or understanding other writing, because you can see the process of someone's unique voice developing right there from story to story as it goes along in that anthology. Yeah, and I, and I think I started uh, with Eyes of the Overworld, um, and it was called Kugel the Clever when I read it uh, in whatever version. So I think um, I think you, you may be right that I'm, I'm perhaps elevating the Dying Earth collection it's not juvenilia. It's still no, no, good. It's, it's just no, it's, not primo it, Vance yeah, yet. It's, it's not full, full bore Vance yet. And then I would say that in science fiction, um, I, I, it took me a great long time to get around to reading Vance in science fiction because I was so in love with his fantasy. And it was only very recently that I picked up the Demon Princes series, which just blew me away at how well constructed the narratives are for something by Jack Vance. And and this is not a diss on Vance. It's just that Vance especially in the dying earth so much of the story is ambience and setting and mood and tone and dialogue and repartee that there doesn't there is not that sort of um uh, genre fiction level of then he went there and did this right that we have come to associate with with say a robert heinlein and so if you're reading vancey and fantasy it is a salutary and beautiful shock to come upon the demon prince's stories which are every bit as tone and repartee and uh, ambiance based, but also have a driving, almost a, a Western level of, of story progression, that that there is a, a good guy and a bad guy, and the good guy is going to hunt down and take care of the bad guy, and that's just going to happen. And what, what Vance is able to do with marrying that narrative thrust to everything else great about Jack Vance, I mean, it was really reading the Demon Princes series that made me take, uh, you know, arguments like Robin seriously, that this was the greatest living author of fantasy and science fiction. I mean, when I saw him be able to do that, it's like, you know, now, <laughs> but you do not, you, you do not understand, I am not left-handed type moment um, for, for, for my experience of Jack Vance. And the only saving grace I can say is that, Robin, you had not read the Demon Princess series until after I had, so... No, I'd read other of his science fiction, but uh, over couple of years ago prepping to do the Guy and Earth or sorry the Guy and Reach role playing game I went back and reread all the stuff that I hadn't read yet sort of because I was sort of saving it mm-hmm. to read over the rest of my lifetime because it's always a reliable pick but of course I had to binge read them as part of a research effort and there's only a couple of them that don't stand up to that really unforgiving regimen right that even somebody who writes in a uh, a popular vein whose you might like if you read one or two of them every year. Uh, for example, I can't read Elmore Leonard anymore because I read too many of them in a row. Yeah, I, I burned out my Robert Ludlum, although Robert Ludlum is no Elmore Leonard, much less a Jack Vance. Right. And so, you know, I began to sort of see uh, his tricks at work and, and I lost the ability to kind of enjoy Elmore Leonard. But Jack Vance totally stands up to that sort of treatment. There are you know, ones that are stronger than others, but there's uh, none of them that... And the thing is, they are... It's not like they are completely different from one another. They all drop you into a very similar world. The discourse between characters is not wildly different in the fantasy books than it is from the science fiction books. As you suggest, the difference is structural, that the fantasy stories are picaresque, whereas the uh, novels typically follow a 
more straightforward level of organization where there is an injustice at the beginning that the lead character uh, must rectify that can be a relatively comic injustice, as in uh, Port of Call, where the character is kicked off a spaceship by his dotty aunt, or it can be something really horrible and dark, like the uh, uh, gruesome murders that propel the night lamp. Um, I would suggest maybe the night lamp is another, uh, it's a later one, but it's another self-contained one that uh, really captures all the different colors of Vance, from the very, very dark to the uh, satirical and uh, amusing and witty. Yeah, I, th I think um, uh, another standalone, if you're looking at standalone Vance, I think Big Planet is another good one. It's, it's, it's again, it's early Vance, and he's still sort of coming up out in this, in this. And again, when you read Big Planet, it's not so much Robert E. Howard meets Clark Ashton Smith. It's more John Campbell meets Clark Ashton Smith, I guess. But I like it because you can tell that even in, you know, in that relatively early time, he's thinking, well, I don't know that there's enough setting in this book for me, so I'm going to make it a really big setting and then and, and call it Big Planet in that sort of great laughing both at and with the reader type way that, that, that Vance had. And I guess we should talk a little bit about his worldview as expressed through his stories, because for me, a great uh, writer, even a great fantasy and science fiction writer, has to say something about humanity. The, the people, although the, the people are often very similar in his books, have a unity to them because his... I think overriding concern is the thin veneer of what we regard as civilization and what happens in worlds where the bonds of civil society have fallen away, that the forms of society are still in place, but no one can really uh, punish anyone else and that you can only succeed by maintaining your wits in a world where almost everyone has sinister and venial Intent And this, uh, people like Michael uh, Chabon, who've talked about his work, sort of trace that to his time serving in the Merchant Marine in World War II and his time, you know, bouncing around the South Pacific and that a lot of the interaction that you see between the characters is reflected from, from that life experience. Although he, uh, like a lot of writers of his generation and genre, was very reluctant to draw connections between his life and his work, or in fact, to make any highfalutin claims for it uh, whatsoever. But uh, so one of the main motifs of the, the guy in reach setting is that the power of authorities to enforce their authority has been dispersed just by the incredible breadth of civilization and that uh, everything is back down to an every man for himself sort of structure, and that's when the worst side of people comes out, whether it's expressed through uh, horrific and cruel murders or just through the innkeeper's latest attempt to cheat you. Yeah, the um, the, the sort of notion that the law, I guess, even is an atmosphere, not a f it's something that you breathe in or, or breathe out, but it's not uh, necessarily a constraint on anybody is something that I think is sort of true to both the fantasy and the science fiction. Have you read any of his mysteries? Because he was also a fairly prolific mystery writer, and I'm wondering if any of that sensibility about men and and law or society or government or however you want to put it is, is present in his mysteries or not. I'm very curious to lay my hands on them, but have not quite managed to do so. I actually had the chance to briefly speak with him on the phone when I was designing the Dying Earth game. That was part of the 
licensing arrangement is that both uh, Simon Rogers and I got to speak with him, and I felt <laughs> somewhat abashed for not having more questions for him because I sort of felt that I understood what was cool about his setting, and particularly the fact that, for example, he won't elaborately describe creatures. He will just refer to them as you would in a realist novel about a, you know, he passed a raccoon or a horse. He will just say, well, a ferocious hoon rose up on its haunches, uh, slavering, and then he doesn't explain what a hoon is. Mm -hmm. And so that uh, is what is reflected in the Dying Earth's approach of giving you all sorts of alternate versions of what a hoon is so that you're not defining it to death and giving everything, you know, so much stats and description that it kills all of the mystery. And so both Simon and I said, this is the way we should do it, right? And he said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that's something that even sort of that idea sort of filters through into your approach to Trail of Cthulhu, where you give all sorts of alternate versions of, of the creatures and so forth. So I had a, kind of a short list of questions for him. And, and at the time, I didn't even really know how notoriously reticent he was to speak about his work, because here was an opportunity where he was actually answering direct questions. And I just didn't really have enough of them. And I felt bad that, you know, I was wasting the great man's time. And so I was trying to get off the line. It turned out he was, he wanted to chat. And so we, <laughs> what we wound up chatting about was about food. And, uh, he recommended, uh, uh, the food writing of Jeffrey Steingarten to me. And, uh, we uh, chatted about that for a while and about our interests in food and about my life in Toronto. And he was, uh, uh very affable and, and pleasant. And, uh, I, uh, on one level, uh, wished I had better questions for him, and on another level, was uh, uh, proud that I didn't need them. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it, I God only knows what I would ask H.P. Lovecraft if, by some you know bizarre mischance, I got to talk to him in a non-necromantic context. <laughs> like, what are you doing in my house? Would be yeah. obviously <laughs> the the more usual one, I guess. But the uh, but but yeah, I mean, I, it's just you know the the notion of you know having time to talk to him and professionally having to find out i mean because i i guess you know part of it is that you and i are both fairly good at pulling themes and motifs and gameable parts out of a background and we don't necessarily need the author to say oh make sure that the magic is really cool and weird and screws you uh you know you, you're like yeah okay jack fans i kind of got that i mean is there is there something that now you sort of wish that you guys got to talk more about was it just you know you want to call him and tell him more recipes or is it or do you have questions about his uh about his, his his writing or his viewpoint or or the internal matters of his fiction that you sort of want to nuggle at with your mental attention as as you go forwards i, I don't know maybe, maybe it's just arrogance on my part or, or just my affinity for the work but i, I kind of feel like i get it and yeah. so uh i uh i have yet to uh retrospectively come up with a question that i wanted to ask him hmm. you know the, the books reveal themselves they're uh i think on an elevated plane from a lot of his contemporaries, but they are uh, not uh, puzzling in their intent. Uh, they are uh, there on the page. He's delivering more than uh, genre readers possibly demand, but it's uh, it's by no means opaque work. And uh, if uh, you enjoy it, as you and I do, you are a person of rare taste and perspicacity. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, you know, to an extent... Uh, Understanding what is great about Jack Vance is just a matter of reading, you know, four or five uh, short stories even of Jack Vance's and then understanding how he made it great is, of course, the work of a lifetime as it is with any uh, great author. Now, if you are of the school that feels there should not be style in writing, 
that styles should just be completely transparent so that you can imagine what's going on as a TV show in your head, uh, you have all sorts of problems, but one of those is that you're not really going to appreciate Jack Vance. Yeah, well, that's a problem that we, even in the um, uh, immortal um, uh, power of our podcast, can't help you with. Uh, well, speaking of the immortal power of our podcast, we'd uh, better move on to another segment. of dice, the rattle of pencils, the scritch of graph paper, and the ever-present fizzing of Mountain Dew tell us that we have moved, ineluctably as it were, into the gaming hut. But I noticed that rather than the um, uh, general attitude of bonhomie that we have uh, as we normally enter, people are ranging themselves behind the uh, old Atari consoles and beaten up couches with crossbows cocked. So Robin, explain to us why this sudden defensive attitude. I thought we would kick around techniques to make defensive scenarios more interesting and fun to play. This is sort of a tangent that came up in a previous gaming hut, and as is our want, we recycle here in the gaming hut, so I thought we would uh, take a look, first of all, at the classic problem of any game situation, but defending a strong point or location or whatever it is where you're waiting for the enemies to show up and you have to fortify whatever it is and make plans for their attack is challenging in a traditional role-playing context because it involves a lot of planning and it involves a lot of waiting around if you do not pace it properly or if you allow the player simply to dictate the pacing. To, to, to spend forever and ever and ever talking about where to dig the slit trench. Exactly. And whereas in uh, cinema and narrative, there are a lot of sort of classic scenes and scenarios about the characters defending a redoubt, whether you're looking at the Alamo or you're looking at the plot of Rio Bravo or, uh, you know, certain uh, set piece scenes in Tolkien, in role playing, that becomes a, a challenge to overcome. And the best way to overcome that challenge is by cheating and by having a group that is already really good at pacing out their planning in a <laughs> systematic way. And I'm, I'm beginning to think that um, uh, while you were in Ottawa, you did not really think this segment through, Robin. No, no, this is, I'm just getting the, the obvious caveat out of the way. <laughs> okay, here's, here's, here's our tip, uh, listeners. We've been holding out on you for 40-odd episodes. The tip for having a good game is have good players. Thank you, and good night. Well, the thing is, I, I just want, I'm just heading off the obvious comment of the person on, on the blog who says, what? My players love to do this, and they're great at it. And I've played with one group uh, that wouldn't require any additional techniques out of the box once. Mm. <laughs> and, and I was playing a game where they didn't have to plan anything or do anything defensive because I was running the Dying Earth for them. And right. uh, so it was a big revelation to them that all games did not involve careful planning of uh, <laughs> defending your base. Uh, but every other group I've ever played with, you would need to introduce the techniques that uh, we're about to talk about for the rest well, of the segment. Well, maybe this, is, maybe this is that Canadian tendency to have a meeting. Yes. So you who are not in Ottawa surely have a, a, another first technique to uh, pop in front of our viewers that is not cheating. 
Well, the, 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 the first and most important thing I find when I'm doing any kind of defensive scenario, and I've run, you know, one or two of them, I think it's more fun for the players, and therefore I tend to uh, default to making the players proactive in the sense that they go find a bad guy outpost to attack. And obviously that goes back to, you know, you find the dungeon, the dungeon then come find you. But I always try and emphasize a ticking clock threat, right? I don't just let them sit around and think they've got all the time in the world. There is going to be an advanced party of orcs or uh, bandits or uh, Nazis or whatever it is, and they're going to come over the hill, and they're going to fight the heroes, and the heroes are going to be bloodied in that fight. And then there is going to be unmistakable intel, radio chatter, omens, signs in the east, peasants fleeing in from the remoter fields, knowing that that was just the first raindrops of the gathering storm, and it is coming in time certain. And, you know, you say you know, whatever it is that you've, you sort of, and again, you do have to sort of suss out what your, what your players um, uh, are capable of doing, but you say it's coming in 24 hours or it's coming in a week or whatever it is. And then you just bear down. And every time that they start getting bogged down in plotting and, and, and planning and trying to, you know, make themselves completely secure from all danger in a non-role-playing uh, appropriate way, you have, you know, a, a, a dragon come overhead or a, or a stupid dive bomber attack them or, uh, tuberculosis set in or the villagers mutiny or something has to happen that always keeps them making decisions in the moment as well as decisions that are future oriented. Right. I think that's exactly the main technique to use, which is to make sure that they don't get to hyperextend time because, you know, the, the time they're spending talking about stuff is, you know, theoretically only takes up the amount of time that it takes them to say it. But in terms of it, the emotional impact of you know, three hours of a session being spent arguing over where to put the reinforcements is tedious in the extreme. And so by making sure that there is a relationship between a tight deadline in the game world and a tight ration of time that they are allowed to use before either something bad happens to them or, the, you know, the main thrust of the incoming forces comes is, I think, another crucial thing. So one trick that you can use is to, and this is something that you can also use in a heist scenario, because both of these things are about planning ahead and then finally having something happen. Now, you will note that if you are watching a film or TV show about defending a strong point, that you may see a lot of stuff about characters waiting around, but they're waiting around having dramatic scenes with each other. Um, you don't see, but if you see a lot of planning, what's going to happen is that whatever they planned for is not going to happen. Right. That there's going to be a big twist, and the, the thing that they planned, there'll be another bit of information that they don't have that will render that moot, and then they have to improvise. So, and, and if you do that in a game where you let people plan for three hours and then have something come out of left field that makes all of that three hours completely worthless, not only will your players feel angry and cheated, but it will inspire the question, why did we spend two to three hours doing that? So an alternative to that is to let them roll on the spot to determine what they have already planned while the thing is happening. So you might assign someone a fortification role, and when the orcs attack, he makes his fortification role to see how well he engineered the fortification. So instead of using player knowledge of how to set up fortifications, which probably you will have zero or one player who 
comes in the door with that, you have to assume that the <laughs> and ideally it's the same. It, it, the, the, you, you have the same zero to one player who thinks they know anything about fortifications. Uh, yes. If, well, actually, the worst thing is two people who know something about it and want to argue about it for yeah. two hours. Um, but this way, you can just have well the. the Character knows all about fortifications because you put the fortifications ability on his character sheet, and so he makes his fortification roll. Right. And if he succeeds, you get to describe the cool thing that you do to set the enemies back. And if he fails, the GM describes the enemies overcoming those fortifications. Right. Yeah. The um, if you can get players into that sort of treating it like a combat that is more abstract, the notion of you know, I roll my fortifications, they roll their offense, we see who wins, as opposed to, no, 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 I sketched out on graph paper, there's a ravel in there, that means they take minus two, then I think that does go a long way towards it. I think another uh, sort of cheat for players who are less um, uh, amenable to that, that I used to use all, all the time when I would do this, well, not all the time, but when I would do this, is I would time the scenario to stop after the threat is established, but before the bad guys attack. And I would say, all right, we have a week until game time. You guys can plan and do on graph paper and send in email and blue book all you want. And what you come to game with, you know, 30 minutes after we start game next Monday, that's the plan. And that's right. when, you know, the dragon hits. That's when the Nazis show up. That's when, you know, whatever it is. Do the wrangling and the boring stuff. Off stage. Off stage. Do it to, to your heart's content. You bring me what you do. I'll spend 30 minutes saying you do not either have a chain gun, and then we move on. And yet another technique is that you can structure something that narratively has the feel of something defensive, but actually has the players doing something proactive, so that you are hunkered down in the castle that's under siege. Uh, you are slowly losing all of your resources in the city. People are sickening. They're starving. But the characters get to go through a secret tunnel and attack the headquarters behind enemy lines of your enemy so that thematically they are defending a, a force or a, a city or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But structurally, they are doing something proactive more within the sort of traditional realm of what role-playing does well week after week. Yeah, I find that, weirdly, games that have sort of good ship combat rules tend to support defensive scenarios better. And maybe it's just because you've already got rules for coastal artillery or whatever. But when I ran a pirate game a while back, I found it was so much easier to run... Well, maybe you're not on a ship, but, you know, you're still being attacked by a bunch of, you know, Spanish or whatever it is. Or you are on a ship, but the Spanish outgun you, and so this is a defensive thing where you have to keep them out of the cove. Or... Um, you are on, uh, on in, a, in a starship. You know, my traveler games would occasionally turn into a point defense because I'd seen, I'd read Starship Troopers and I'd uh, seen Zulu, and I thought that that would be an awesome thing to do. Uh, as eventually did Paul Verhoeven, apparently. Um, and so I, I find that g games where the players, I guess, are used to abstracting that level of combat, it's easier to run those, and it's easier, I guess, to get player buy-in. And finally, another thing that you can do is a siege scenario in which what happens in the siege is just a backdrop for character interaction so that you can, you know, have a big session of whatever interpersonal style game it is that is, or, you know, a regular standard game, but you're only going to pay attention to the interpersonal part of it, uh, where you can say at the end of it that, you know, this is the session that happens during the siege, 
and you may know at the end of the scenario what happens in the siege, but it, the object of what the characters are doing is within the siege. It's not that you're actually enacting a defense, but that you have a certain amount of time before the, uh, Rome is going to be sacked. Uh, what do you do during that time? Sort of a bottle scenario type thing. Exactly. Yeah. So I think now that we've dispensed somewhere between uh, 4 and 6.5 different techniques for defensive scenarios that we have covered our remit and can move on to our final segment. that final segment is Among My Many Hats, the segment in which we dispense with the covert plugging of the rest of our podcast and enter the realm of overt plugging. And this is an interesting example of Among My Many Hats in that it is going to segue into a multi-part series over the course of our next few episodes in which Ken delves into the subject matter of his new book, The Nazi Occult. But I thought before we get to that, that we would actually talk a bit about the book itself and the process of creating the book. And so uh, this is part of the Osprey Adventures line, and I want to talk about what that means exactly in a moment. But first, Ken, I thought I would encourage you as a fellow who is interested in militaria, and I'm guessing was like that as a kid, to tell me about your first exposure as a young Ken Height to the Osprey line of books. I don't actually remember which my first Osprey book was, which probably means that it was a bunch of Osprey books. I uh, When I started doing wargaming, uh, and I my dad got me into wargaming, we played uh, Avalon Hill games, mostly Gettysburg, and he beat the hell out of me, and then I found another buddy uh, Jeff, who I played a bunch of war games with, and we would go to game stores, which in those days were war game stores that sold chess sets and poker cards and, you know, as far as I knew, illegal liquor out of the back. And how old a Ken height are we imagining here? This is, this is like Ken in, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13. This is my, even pre-D&D, my pre-pre-adolescent sort this of This is stained era. by me, Ken. Yes, yeah, very much. This is, uh, we, we go and we find a dead body and maybe we have Goonies adventures, Ken. So Jeff and I would go around to the um, various uh, game stores in Oklahoma City. There were, you know, two or three, and we'd get someone's mom to drive us. And somewhere on one of those shelves was a bunch of Osprey books. And I just remember looking at a book that promised me, you know, um, I, I don't even remember what it was, English Longbowman, uh, you know, uh, 1194 to 1355, or, or whatever it happened to be, it probably would have been to 1453, because it would have been down to the uh, end of the Hundred Years' War. But I, I just remember looking at that book and thinking, well, that's that's a very small book to have all of English Longbowmen in it, and then looking at the <laughs> at the Osprey art, which even then was, was so far and away the best uh, art in military history books, because it was originally done as a, as a painting guide for modelers. And I just, just, I, it was like a whole possibility opened up that you could get that much information out of such a, a, a small little package. And I probably bought, you know, everything that was on sale in that store from Osprey, or maybe everything that I recognized the guy on the front cover. And ever since then, Osprey has been my go to for anytime I want to know anything about military history. The first thing I do is I say, 
is there an Osprey book on it? And I get to that, and by now, of course, there's usually 50 Osprey books on it. So as a first cut, that's a terrible idea. But <laughs> but I still, I mean, I've, I've been, you know, working in Osprey booths at conventions, and I'm still amazed that there are Osprey books on such and such a topic. So how big is the Osprey shelf at the Height Memorial Library? <laughs> well, once I became an Osprey author and started getting comp Osprey books, it got, it got even fatter. It is um, probably... I want. I don't want to say. You know, it's. If you said ten linear feet, you would not be wrong. Let's say that. I mean, you're, you're. You'd be recognizably in the direction. It's just that I've. I've had to move the Ospreys around by subject matter area. So there's a, about half of a shelf in uh, British history that's British military history. There's most of a shelf now in American history that's American military history. The disastrous 20th century. The whole top shelf is Osprey books. It's, so it, it, there's a lot of Osprey in there. So for those playing along at home with their betting pools, uh, we will be counting 10 feet as the number of Osprey books that Ken owns. And is there a particular one that you remember as being near and dear to your heart? I guess uh, the the one that I've, I, I've liked the most, there's a, there's there's an Osprey book on, uh, let's see, I, I want to say it's the Osprey book on like the Polish hussars of the 17th century. And I forget when it's like 1560 to 1648 or something like that. And I remember, and I think that's a fairly early Osprey book in my, in my trolling, but it's the first Osprey book. I think that I picked up knowing zero about the topic. I mean, I knew Poland existed and I knew it fought the, the, the hated Turks and the hated Russians, but I knew nothing at all about the hussars. I knew no Polish Kings. I probably didn't even know John Sobieski then. And, I remember just that book there, and of course, you know, now I recognize that Polish military history is a is a strong Osprey topic because there are so many great Polish military historians and military novelists. But at the time, just sort of, it, it was like reading a fantasy book in the sense that it was a a world that I didn't know anything about, and I think that I'm still I'm still fondest of that. I, I you know, as a as sort of a a consulting occultist, Osprey has a terrific like two or three books now on the Knights Templar that are. They're really good, and that doesn't even get into the book about the Crazy Knights Templar that they're going to be publishing in that uh, Osprey Adventures line. Well, I guess that segues us to the already uh, foreshadowed question, which is uh, Osprey has branched out from reality and history to a blend of the two with its Osprey Adventures line. Could you tell us a bit more about that? The Osprey Adventures is a a sort of a, a, a the goal is to take a mythological or fictional or you're not so much fictional in the sense of, you know, Tolkien, but fictional in the sense of didn't happen uh, or, or legendary uh, part of, of culture or of, of society or of people hitting each other with swords and, and treat it like you would treat, you know, uh, Polish hussars or English longbowmen or that you would take that topic and sort of, Treated to a degree of uh, with uh, with tongue in cheek, to a degree with just sort of explaining what the myth is. So, for example, there's an Osprey book uh, called Dragon Slayers that is just a whole bunch of fights against dragons uh, going all the way back. And again, with the phenomenal Osprey art, which you know you look at it and it's best of breed fantasy art. It it just really is because it's best of breed art. They've got terrific artists that they've been working with in some cases for 20 years. And uh, so there's a book on dragon slayers. There's a book on um, uh, the uh, uh, War of Horus and Set that's going to come out pretty soon. The first Osprey book in the Osprey Dark uh, line that is uh, that uh, the uh, Nazi occult is in it was called Zombies: A Hunter's Guide, and is about what you would expect, uh, including delightful. And so it's it, it's just I think their notion that at some point 
everyone who wanted to read about Italian medium tanks, uh, 1942 to 1944, had done so, and they needed to sort of push out into people like me, who are ancillary uh, military fans, because our imaginary imaginative hobbies involved, uh, you know, combat, but were not focused entirely on what kind of uniform did uh, Pizarro wear, and was more on the lines of, wouldn't it be awesome if Pizarro had to fight Inca, you know, death gods or something? So speaking of blurring the lines between history and the imaginative, your topic is the Nazi occult, and if I can think of a book that you were born to write, this would be it. <laughs> uh, it's a subject that you've been studying for a long time. So how did you, uh, once you got your brief and uh, contained your excitement when Osprey asked you to do this. Uh, what, what were your steps? How did you, what was your process of putting this together? Well, the process initially, it began that I was going to write a very straight faced Osprey book. It was just going to be completely, you know, uh, you know, very neutrally in tone, very, uh, dry, uh, very academic writing. And I got, I don't know, the five or 6,000 words in, and had had the outline done. And I realized that I didn't want to read this book, much less write this book. And so I, I sort of ripped it out and went back and I said, all right, the goal of this book is it's to be in the Osprey dark line. The first book in the line is Zombie Hunters, so hopefully people will not come to this expecting a, um, a purely academic treatment. What? How much fun can I have with this topic? And it became a matter of beginning with, you know, as I was always planning to do, the actual provable facts of Nazi uh, bigwigs' involvement in occultism. And given that many of them were, to use the technical term, Meshuggah, uh, there, there is a, a non-trivial amount of that. Then you layer onto that the sort of uh, works that have been, uh, theories that have been postulated by generally uh, well-researched, generally well-respected, generally reliable sources who are from one or another occult tradition. And these are going to be people like um, uh, Nicholas, uh, well, not uh, people like Jocelyn Godwin, people like um, uh, Peter Lavenda, who of all things is actually reliable on this topic to some extent. Um, and explain the uh, irony there for people who don't know who Peter Lavenda is. Peter Lavenda is almost certainly the guy who wrote the fake Necronomicon under the name Simon. Um, he will deny it and say that the fake Necronomicon was found in a Sumerian tomb or some idiocy. But, and therefore it wasn't fake. Yeah, right. <laughs> but that even if it was fake, it wasn't him who faked it. That it was that Simon is some other guy, not Peter Lavenda. But I think right. it's been it, it's it's a fairly open secret that that Peter Lavenda was the Simon of the Simon Necronomicon. And so going from that to again, not a fully reliable, but in the sense of every historical fact that he lists seems to have either actually happened or be a legitimate extrapolation from the historical evidence, as opposed to just being complete nonsense. Now, admittedly, some of the conclusions that he draws from those historical facts are complete nonsense, but, you know, the Lord knows that I'm familiar enough with that, that that just rolls off my back. So th th that brings us into the, the levels that are at play in the book, because uh, you have the level of uh, absolute historical reality that uh, you are, we are all confident happened. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's the level of craziness that other people have made up and attached to it, the mythology part of uh, the Nazi occult. Yeah. And then you are, as part of the Osprey Adventures line, adding a little bit more fantasy and craziness built on top of that. Right, because I, I felt that if you are looking at a book about the Nazi occult, what you are 
90% likely to use it for in the sense of as a as a gamer, as someone who's going into a, a store that, that sells Osprey books, you're going to be using it for a fantasy game. And so I wanted to think, uh, to present a barely plausible uh, Nazi occult war effort. And, and so moving slightly beyond uh, the Nazis wasting money on occult theories to uh, the Nazis training magic using soldiers. And uh, in the same way that the Zombies a Hunter's Guide posits a secret uh, plan by the Nazi uh, Nazis to build uh, zombies and use them on, on the Eastern Front, I hint at you know, the use of, uh, of weather magic on the Eastern Front or the use of or an attempt by the, the, by the Third Reich to negotiate a treaty with Zerzura, the lost city in uh, the Libyan desert, and uh, how that went horribly wrong when they attacked the genie guardian of it instead of uh, make, a, make a deal. And so it's that sort of thing that I, I, I would think, all right, here's what, the, what, what sort of is shaped by actual history, here's what's shaped by plausible occultism, here's what other occultists have said, what do I need to add to it to make it a fun and convincing narrative? So it still comes off reading like a narrative history. It's just a more exciting, less uh, priggish narrative history, I guess. And in, in that way, it, it does approach the, the, the better written of the Osprey campaign books uh, that are also uh, pretty fluid narrative histories. And indeed, the, uh, the commanders that they had, the biographies of, of great commanders, is, is some of the best writing that has ever appeared in the line. And so I wanted to sort of aim for that tone of Osprey as opposed to the... Um, you know, listing of every type of aileron on a DH-11 uh, or whatever. Right. And there, I think you will find that there are certain readers who are picking up the book and mistakenly wishing <laughs> that you had written the version that you abandoned at the 7,000 word mark for being boring. So if you want to try and figure out as you're reading what is presented as a straight narrative account in an alternative world where some of the forces that were being accessed were real. Um, I think the the trick is obviously to, you know, once you reach a portion of the text where you start describing battlefield magic as having a real effect in a battle, obviously you know yeah. that you have ventured into the fantastical part of the story. Are there any other uh, tricks that people can use to reverse engineer the uh, fact from the fiction? I think that the, the first of all, like, like, like I say, the, the, the best possible defense, and this is true of anyone's book about the Nazi occult, mine or anyone else's, is a critical historical mind. If you look at the story and you say, I don't think that happened, you know, again, there was some crazy stuff that, that they got up to, but it probably didn't happen. There, there were no actual Nazi werewolves. There is no Nazi UFO base in Antarctica. Uh, rune magic does not work. Uh, all the other things that you know in your heart are true are still true. But the Nazis being who they were and World War II being what it was and the field being what it is, there are a lot of sort of borderline cases where when you look at it and you're saying, really, an Ananerba archaeologist became intelligence um, officer for the first Viking SS division? That's true. So if there's something that's, that's exciting but does not immediately involve magic, I would say, you know, do what I had to do when I built the book, uh, Google it and see if it's right. And then ideally you'll have the same fun that I did of discovering these facts. Like, for example, I discovered an entirely unknown to me and I think pretty much anyone else. Uh, I've never read it in a compendium of the Nazi occult, certainly, uh, project to, to gather up a, um, core reading list of powerful grimoires 
by a otherwise skeptical uh, SS officer, Ernst Kaltenbrunner, towards the end of the war called Project Leo, and I stumbled on that uh, reading a uh, academic disquisition on, on library history uh, because I was I knew that there was the name of one specific SS officer who was in charge of the occult library that the Ananerba kept, and I thought, I wonder what happened to him later in the war, and I just sort of Googled his name obsessively and, you know, traced it through all kinds of um, uh, Google uh, documents and, and Google uh, academic uh, uh, searches and JSTOR, and I found that this paper cites him <laughs> completely unaware that he is a, a starring figure in a lot of other crazy books. And so did you add mundane facts to this to make it work, or are all of your additions uh, obviously fantastical? There is one case where there was a genuine Nazi subgroup of the Ananerba, the, the, the students of the, of the occult sciences, and I inserted a name into that because I couldn't find out who ran it, and I thought it would be funny if it was one of the mad scientists from Hellboy. Um, there's another uh, Nazi who is who is a made-up Nazi who I then gave a real career to. Uh, he, his name is Konrad Buch, and he sort of became my um, uh, my zelig of the Nazi occult uh, because he appears only once in the entire corpus of Nazi occultism. He is the guy who is mentioned as the SS officer who gave Hitler the Spear of Destiny in 1938. And he's mentioned not in Trevor Ravenscroft's book, The Spear of Destiny, but in the Irish Times story that made up the story of The Spear of Destiny that Trevor Ravenscroft used. And Conrad Buch appears nowhere else except for one Irish Times report. And I thought, gosh, he, that's a shame to waste him. So I sort of gave him a real Nazi career, you know, a, a legitimate career in the sense that he was doing things that other uh, people of his age might have done. But I did not, for example, make Himmler do anything Himmler didn't do. Uh, Ernst Kaltenbrunner, I gave him a, 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 a I, I speculated some motives for gathering up grimoires, but he's the guy who gathered up grimoires. It's not on me to, um, uh, you know, uh, justify his actions. It's on me to try and make up a reason why I might have done that. So that's the sort of interleaving that I'm talking about. Right. And in a familiar pattern that we may get to a bit more next week, there is even a history in the sort of early development that led to the Nazi occult of people taking works of fiction that are labeled as fiction that everybody knows as fiction, but because you want them to be real, saying, well, obviously these are works of truth disguised as fiction, yes. which I, I think happens even beyond that in the annals of occultism. So, oh, absolutely. So are you secretly hoping that there are things in this book, which is uh, labeled uh, not necessarily obviously to someone who doesn't know what an Osprey Adventures book is? Or do you, are you hoping that uh, some of the stuff that you have made up will sneak into the uh, lore of putatively future nonfiction Nazi occult books? Yeah, I, would, I would love to see Conrad Buch start uh, getting headlines in other uh, Nazi occult books uh, by crazy people later on. It would be a little sadder if it turns up in works by real scholars, but I expect real scholars know better than to sole source a topic from an Osprey Adventures book. So I, I but I am looking forward to, um, uh, you know, in my, in, in my declining years, uh, opening up a Llewellyn Press uh, book about the Nazi occult and finding stuff I made up in there. Yes, that would be delightful. So how did you walk the line between, because uh, the premise of this is that the forces that your Nazi occultists were drawing on were real, how did you walk the line between saying that these forces were real and saying that the uh, 
incredibly pernicious mythology that they promulgated had some sort of real basis. Well, I was very careful, for example, to not make up a magical explanation for the Holocaust. I sort of rule that out at the very beginning. I mean, the Holocaust does come out of, among other things, magical thinking, but it also comes out of a, uh, uh, as we learned later, misapprehension of Darwinism, out of a uh, uh, possibly misapprehension of Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. It comes out of a lot of places besides just crazy Russian people ranting. And so I, I didn't do anything like that. And there is no point at which even in the imaginary pretend world of the book, the Nazis are able to um, actually meet an Aryan Superman or anything like that. All of the uh, sort of Nazi experiments with the occult in the book are either fairly dubious in the sense that they might not have been doing what the Nazis thought they were doing, um, or they are not drawing on the um, racial subcomponent of the occult. Because again, the Nazis had a lot of stuff going into that stew, and you can have a lot of fun with rune magic that never even touches on the question of, of race or Aryanism or anything else. And, you know, you know in your heart that the reason the Ananerba thinks rune magic is awesome is because they think it's Aryan magic. But from the perspective of, of the book, there's no way to know whether or not if the Americans had decided to do rune magic, they might not have been able to do it. So I guess this brings us to the uh, end of our background segment on the book, and we're going to use that as a jumping-off point for a multi-part tour uh, through the Nazi occult. And uh, the difference between uh, what you'll find in Ken's book and what we're going to be talking about is we're going to uh, stick to the actual facts and footnote any escapades into uh, craziness as such. So if you are looking for that, uh, guide to help you decode the uh, real from the pulpy, uh, you'll be able to uh, listen to future segments of this very podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Make a motion in the plenary session at com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. 